You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Hey, everyone. It's Dave Asprey with Bulletproof Radio. Today's cool fact of the day is that when women who are unhappy or stressed were diagnosed with hysteria... A common treatment was for their physician to give them a pelvic massage to induce hysterical paroxysm, which we would call an orgasm today. This is actually why vibrators were invented in the late 1800s uh, for your doctor to use on you. And that's a hilarious cool fact of the day, you got to admit. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's guest is Julie Holland. She's an American psychopharmacologist, a psychiatrist, and an author of four books, including one that has the best title ever called Moody Bitches, The Truth About the Drugs You're Taking, The Sleep You're Missing, and The Sex You're Not Having, and What's Really Making You Crazy, uh, as well as Weekends at Bellevue, which is about nine years working a shift at the Psych ER. She's also been on CNN, National Geographic, a whole bunch of other TV things, Dr. Oz, and basically she's famous and writes books with cool titles, and we have lots of fun stuff to talk about. So, Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm trying to figure out where 
to start a Where discussion start? with you. Because you've written a really extensive research paper on MDMA and a whole book called Ecstasy, The Complete Guide. So you, you've okay. you've really been open as a psychiatrist, a psycho a psycho Psychopharmacologist. Yeah, it was a farm. Okay. I was just thinking, was it pharmacologist? Um, by the way, when I made $6 million when I was 26, my dream was to quit my job and then go get a degree in psychopharmacology because it sounded so cool and I knew nothing it about it. Uh, and then I, well, then I lost my $6 million and I've been working yeah. for 20 years ever since. But it was a good idea. So, well, like, my condolences. It does sound cool. I mean, my mother, you know, when she tells people what I do, she never says I'm a psychiatrist. She always says psychopharmacologist. So, uh, she thinks it sounds more impressive. And I also think that psychiatrist sort of gives the impression that, you know, people are lying on their couch talking about their mothers, what they dreamt last night. Um, and I don't tend to delve into that territory. So when you, uh, when people are listening, I'm sure some people don't know exactly what a psychopharmacologist is. Walk me through the differences between uh, what you do and what the people with the couches do. <laughs> Well, um, I really focus on the biology and the sort of chemistry of the brain, you know, as little as we know about the way the brain works. Um, I try to stay focused on, on the machine, you know, how, like how are you sleeping? How is your energy level? How is your appetite? Um, are you horny? Like how is your libido um, and mood? But, you know, the thing about a woman's mood is it will naturally fluctuate. Um, over the course of a 28-day cycle, assuming that she is sort of a free-range woman who's not taking hormones. Um, so I don't rely too much on mood to really diagnose um, psychiatric disorders. I, I rely much more sort of on, on the machinery, on the biology and how people are doing. And also I look at the genetics. Uh, family history is really important when it comes to psychiatric disorders. Um, but what I do is uh, I have a prescription pad. I, I do have a couch. I like people to be comfortable. We do a lot of talking. <laughs> Um, but you know, I don't focus so much on childhood traumas, um, and sort of, you know, negative thinking and, and, you know, I really, I really try to focus as much as I can on the, the sort of the, the pharmacology of the brain. And especially a lot of people will come to me and they've already been on different medications. So it's important for me to know what meds you've taken, what responses you've had, what's worked for you. And really importantly, what's worked for family members. Um, you know, as much as a diagnosis runs in family, treatment response really runs in family. So it's important for me, you know, if you've got a sister who's been on eight different medications and the ninth one was the winner, you may just want to start with that. So it's important for me to know that. Um, but, you know, it's, I prescribe uh, I prescribe antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds um, and very rarely antipsychotics um, for, for mood disorders. Um, which puts me in league with a lot of other doctors in America. You know, one out of four women now in America is taking a psychiatric medication. And about 80% of the psych meds in America are prescribed by doctors who aren't psychiatrists, who aren't psychopharms, um, who are GPs or internists or family medicine doctors. And the problem there is that it's very easy to reach for a prescription pad and hand over a prescription. Um, it's much harder to really take the time. It really takes an hour, even an hour and a half to do an initial evaluation and understand what's going on with the patient. In a family practice situation, you've got maybe six or 10 minutes where you're getting a sense of the symptoms and the history and you're writing a prescription. And, you know, it's very easy to hand over a prescription and that's the end of the, the appointment and the patient comes back. Um, and then you've got sort of a customer you know, I mean, one of the things I say in Moody Bitches is that big pharma is sort of creating customers. They're not necessarily looking for cures. Um, these medicines, people take them for years and years. And the thing they realize is they have a lot of trouble coming off the medicine. 
So this is one of the things that I'm doing more and more now is people are coming to me wanting to get off the medicines that they've been on for decades. Um, and it's very challenging work, but I think it's really important. So there are, are a group of people listening who are going to say, oh, you know, th- basically this is a form of pill pushing and, and all that, but it, it sounds like you're getting people off of it. And I know just from having looked at, at the body of your work, you wrote the cave woman's guide to good health for glamour magazine, which is kind of the opposite of what a pill pusher would write. Cause you right. don't qualify as a pill pusher. You could qualify as someone who uses all the tools at her disposal. Um, what, what are the types of things that you recommend people do when they're not going to be using drugs, uh, to, to stabilize their mood, which sometimes drugs can change your life in the best possible way when foods don't work. But what are all the things right. you look at that aren't well, ph- pharmaceutical? So a few things there. I mean, look, there are people who really need meds. You know, yeah. there are people who have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or just crippling major depressive disorders, and they need antidepressants. Yeah. And I absolutely will prescribe them for them. But there are other people where you're getting into this sort of cosmetic psychopharmacology area where, you know, it's like, do you have a deviated septum or do you just, you know, want your nose to look better? Where people don't necessarily have um, a major psychiatric disorder or a major mood disorder, but they feel kind of lousy. So, and they come to me, you know, 20 years ago when I started being a psychopharm, people came to me with symptoms and they didn't quite know what to do. Um, and they didn't know what they needed. And, you know, what's happened in the last 20 years is that because of direct-to-consumer advertising, women are coming to me now um, as opposed to saying, you know, I'm waking up at three in the morning and I don't know what to do. They're coming to me now and they're saying, you know, I don't know what the difference is between Effexor and Wellbutrin. And I don't know, you know, whether I should be on an SSRI or a mood stabilizer. You know, my friend is taking Zoloft. My Pilates instructor says Lamictal is great. You know, I don't know which one of these medicines to take. And that's really different. Um, so, so now when people come to me and they want meds, sometimes I will give them the medicines they need. I mean, the truth is by the time they get to me, they usually really do need medication. They've been seeing a therapist. The therapist thinks they need medicines. Um, so I may start a medicine, but it's a little more of a bait and switch now where, okay, you want to be on an antidepressant. I will give you an antidepressant. But now that you're on it and feeling better, let's talk about what you ate for breakfast. Let's talk about the fact that you're only sleeping six hours when you really need eight or nine. Um, let's talk about the fact that you get no sunlight, you never go outside, you're not in nature, you're not having sex. I mean, there are lots of things that go into somebody feeling lousy. And even though the antidepressants can make you feel a lot better, they don't really look at the, at the core reasons for why, you know, why the malaise, why are you feeling so lousy? So in Moody Bitches, I focus quite a bit on the things that I, that I did write about in, the, in that Glamour article, the Cave Woman's Guide to Good Health. Um, and, and that article really was sort of the, the beginning of me writing Moody Bitches. And it was this idea that if you look back to, you know, the paleo times and you look at what cave women did and how much they slept and what they ate um, and how how they were with their bodies and what, kind, you know, how often they may have sex or with whom. You know, there's a lot of things that we're doing now with the way we live that aren't really natural for our bodies. I mean, we're spending way too much time indoors, under fluorescent lights, recycled air. You know, we're not out in nature. We're not getting sunshine. We're not moving our bodies. We're not in our bodies. You know, we're, if we're at work, we're sitting on a desk, we're at the computer, we're all, you know, hunched over our smartphones. You know, it's not natural. It's not how we were designed. And also we were designed um, to be having sex with multiple partners. So I talk quite a bit in Moody Bitches about, about monogamy and the constraints of monogamy and how that is going to have a, a negative impact for most women on their libido. Uh, you know, everyone has this idea that men are designed for novelty and novelty is what arouses men. But the truth is it's, 
absolutely, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander or vice versa, um, that women are aroused by novelty also. So I talk quite a bit about, about monogamy and, and how, how challenging that can be to stay in a long-term monogamous relationship. So it's interesting over the over the last couple of years, uh, Chris Ryan, who wrote Sex at Dawn, has been a guest on the show. Yeah, and, and there's a couple other people uh, with a, kind of the, the same general perspective. That, like biologically, maybe that isn't working so well. Um, right. But we we also live in kind of a, an environment in a society where that's that's normal, and that's kind of what a lot of people are doing uh, in terms of just having monogamy. So. Uh, when someone lays down on you know on your your couch and uh, you have your prescription pad ready and yeah. uh, how do you address that with a patient who is probably monogamous like, like I'm just trying to imagine how the conversation with your psychiatrist goes well, like you know maybe you should be seeing other people and you've been married for 20 years like what's up with that right well first of all look I I have been with my partner Jeremy for 20 years we've been married for 16 years um so it's something that you know we struggle with and and I'm very familiar with and I always first of all when I start talking to my patients about sex um, I let them know that I enjoy talking about sex and that they should feel open. You know, I'm not judgmental. They can tell me yeah. anything. But actually, the thing that kind of freaks me out the most is when my patients tell me that they're, you know, in a loveless marriage or a sexless marriage where they've been with the same partner for a long time and they're not having any sex at all. And I hear that a lot. And one of the major complaints of my patients is low libido. Uh, first of all, a good chunk of the of the antidepressants, you know, anything that's going to increase serotonin, like the SSRIs or the SNRIs. You're talking about medicines like Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Lexapro, um, and then the SNRIs, which are like Effexor and Cymbalta. All of those medicines make you less horny and make it harder to climax, especially for women. They make it take longer. They decrease sexual response. They decrease desire, and um, they make it really difficult to climax. So I talk in Moody Bitches quite a bit about, um, you know, it's a very high price to pay to be feeling better. And if you can manage your mood without taking antidepressants, then your libido is going to be in better shape. The other issue is that women are taking oral contraceptives, which decrease libido in two ways. First of all, you don't ovulate when you're taking things like the pill. Um, so you're missing out on that sort of one or two days in the cycle where you're guaranteed to be horny. But the other thing is that the longer you're taking oral hormones, the lower your testosterone levels are. So, and testosterone is really the thing that fuels libido for men and for women. So with lower and lower testosterone levels over time, you're less and less horny. And I call it like the dirty little secret of the pill, that it really cuts your libido and it cuts your sexual response. It cuts desire. And the antidepressants, not only do they make you less horny and sort of less capable of enjoying sex fully, but they make you less interested in looking for a mate or evaluating mates. There's really interesting animal studies where they give these, you know, rats or mice um, SSRIs and the mice don't flirt with the male mice. The female mice, they say to themselves, they don't go over to where the males are. They don't uh, do the little come hither posture where they stick their butt up in the air. Um, and there are interesting human studies that are being conducted now and the data is being organized, but they haven't been published yet. But showing that women on antidepressants, they look at men differently. They evaluate men differently. They spend less time gazing at their face. They're more likely, um, you know, to sort of, to sort of right swipe away. Um, they're, they're rejecting potential mates. Um, because of this high serotonin levels that the antidepressants are giving them. Wow, that that's a a pretty a pretty big indictment against the pill. Not to mention 
the little cancer thing from some, from studies that have come out about odds of getting cancer later in life, particularly breast cancer and the whole pheromone thing where you, you pick right. the wrong mate because they smell wrong when you're yeah, on the Yeah, well, pill. that pheromone thing is huge. I absolutely <laughs> read about this in, in Moody Bitches. It's oh, you a, did write about that. Okay, I forgot. It's a really big deal. Yeah, that, that being on the pill, you know, the way one of the ways that we uh, choose or select a mate um, is based on their genetics and our genetics and what you want. Like, say you're resistant to five illnesses and, the, and a guy, somebody else is resistant to five illnesses and they're five different illnesses. That means when you get together, your kids potentially could be resistant to 10 illnesses. That's what you want, right? You want different genetic uh, capabilities so that your kids have more. Um, and this kind of mate selection is done primarily by smell and by pheromones. Pheromones help you pick the right genetically appropriate mate. Um, but when you're on oral contraceptives, you end up picking up picking somebody who's similar to you as opposed to different. So you don't have as much uh, genetic, uh, you know, uh, the vigor of a hybrid. You know, you're not going to get this this vigorous hybrid when you have kids. You're going to get kids who are also just immune to five things instead of 10. Um, but when you end up picking somebody who's more like a brother than an other, somebody who's sort of more genetically similar than you want. Um, and then what happens is that when women go off the pill, um, Sometimes their mate doesn't smell right to them anymore. And the truth, I mean, what I actually encourage my patients to do is, you know, if you're at the point where you're shopping for a husband, where you're really looking for a mate, you want to settle down, you want to have kids, it's really best to, to do that kind of behavior off the pill. I understand it's inconvenient to be off the pill when you're uh, trying on mates for size, but it's, it's better to use a non-hormonal form of birth control to do that. I mean, the problem is there are very few non-hormonal forms of birth control now. I mean, it's very hard to get a diaphragm and the cervical cap is like non-existent, which freaks me out. I mean, I, you know, this, the documentary who killed the electric car, I want to know who killed the cervical cap because this is a great cheap, uh, reusable for decades, non-hormonal form of birth control. So it, it would be nice if it were more available. I mean, big pharma has really taken over and doctors just push the pill. Then you have women who are in the combination of oral contraceptives and antidepressants where you get the double whammy where they have very high estrogen levels, high serotonin levels, they're not very horny, their, their testosterone is low, their pheromone processing is screwed up, and they have no libido, it's very difficult to climax. And you know, you get into sort of a, a nun-hermit situation there where you're, <laughs> you know, you're not interested in sex. Um, the, one of the things that a woman's orgasm does for her is it helps her evaluate partners. And somebody who is willing to take the time to be selfless and committed to that other person's pleasure, that's a really important quality in a mate and somebody who's going to help you raise your kids. And if you can't climax, if you're not that interested in sex, like don't bother, it's too hard, just don't worry about me, you're, you know, you're missing out on uh, one important measure of a partner. I'm still thinking about your cervical cap comment. So here's a challenge because 100,000 okay. people hear this or something. Either somebody listening, figure out the way to 3D print a BPA-free cervical cap and just let's not have to prescribe any of this crap. Or right. someone else start the company that says, oh, it's totally legal to ship into the U.S. a cervical cap for personal use. 
So if they're made anywhere on the planet properly, then people could get them. And since we have this cool thing called the mail, uh, there's actually no reason for there not to be cervical caps. And if you want to make a lot of money, this is a great business idea, no joke, because there is a lot of evidence that this is a good idea. And if big companies won't do it because of regulation, oh, no, we'll have to just go around regulation because that's what's fun. There isn't even any regulation. I mean, I, I actually looked into this. I was, trying to okay. convince, I was trying to convince one of my nieces. I'm like, you know, I have a million dollar idea for you. I think that they're are women who would like a non-hormonal form of birth control that they don't need to go to a doctor and they can just fit it themselves. You can also use it for menstrual blood. Sorry to gross people out, but there are things like diva cups um, and you can use a cervical cap as a diva cup. So, um, and you know, you're not adding to the landfill. I mean, you have a reusable little rubber thimble shaped device um, that can work as a barrier. So, um, especially if you combine that with withdrawal, you're in very good shape. I mean, the, the cervical cap, if you're not using withdrawal, it's, it's somewhere between 80 and 90% effective. So you may need to combine it with withdrawal, but for most people, uh, withdrawal is not a problem, especially if you're a grown up. No, sorry to get graphic here. I, I, know, I like to talk about sex. Uh, you know, it's funny, uh, you're on Bulletproof Radio, we actually like women, and so if you don't talk about things that affect women, then, like, they don't know about them. So we actually like women. Good. It's fine. I'm glad. I'm glad I'm My first book was about fertility and pregnancy, <laughs> so okay. uh, that's fine. We can we can talk about that um, all day long. Uh, the other the other interesting thing, and I get this question all the time, is like, what's the best form of birth control? But But number one is not the pill, because if you're a woman who's been on the pill for a long time, you've probably forgot what it feels like when you ovulate, which can be uncomfortable, but it's also definitely going to be the time when you're most attractive to men and you can like walk into a bar and every head will turn. And I'm not sure we even know all the signals your body's sending out, but pretty much they all say, come do me now. And it's kind of good for your, like for your, for your self image there to just realize how attractive you are, even though half of it may be neuro hormonal or something. Yeah, I mean, Chris Ryan talks a lot about this in Sex at Dawn. He talks about not only um, are women more attractive to men when they're ovulating, women are kind of more attractive to themselves. They feel prettier. Yeah. They dress up a little bit more, a little bit more, um, you know, jewelry, or they put on the red dress that maybe they don't feel comfortable in the, the rest of their cycle. I mean, you know, uh, I took a lot of anthropology courses when I was at Penn, and, you know, they kept sort of telling me that, you know, like a, like a baboon has an obvious overt signal of when she's ovulating, her butt is bright red, you can't miss it. And, you know, women are covert signalers, uh, uh, human women, you know, we don't have any overt signals, it's all covert, it's all hidden. But I, to me, it's not so covert, it's not so hidden that I think um, uh, a woman who is free range and is ovulating, you can, you can feel yourself <laughs> ovulating. This free range thing is something new I'm trying. Out I was like, like, what is a free range woman? So free is she grass fed? <laughs> a free range woman is grass fed. She gets outside in nature. Um, you know, she's not taking exogenous hormones. She lets her own natural ebb and flow of her hormones dictate her sexual behavior. And, um, you know, I, um, I am free range now. There was a time when I was on the pill, but I definitely know, um, when I'm fertile. I, I mean, I see the way I'm acting. I see the way other people respond to me. I know the way that I feel. I mean, it's not, it's not so covert. Um, and that's nature, you know, nature, obviously you're designed to be horny when you're fertile. I mean, that's just logical. Um, it may be a little bit inconvenient if you're trying to not get pregnant. Have you seen the studies about, uh, IQ and, and ovulation? No. So, so my, what, does a woman's IQ go up or? Well, it, what, it depends. Uh, does, my, she get, does she get stupid? <laughs> my wife's a physician who runs a fertility coaching practice. And it turns okay. out women who are above average intelligent get dumber. 
when they ovulate and women who are of below average intelligence get smarter when they ovulate. That so makes you, sense. you approach the norm, which is right. like, you know, whatever's going to help to right. get you, uh, yeah. who would have expected that? I can't quote the source of the study other than, you know, Dr. Lana told me, but it's from a reliable source because so she read I like it. Somewhere. That. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll make sure my daughter doesn't take her SATs when she's fertile then I guess. It, <laughs> there's something to be said there. for that. And like, um, but that it's logical. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense to me. I mean, that's what I love about, about nature. It all makes sense. You know, when it comes to human behavior, um, the body is very wise. And so, you know, I hate that we're sort of thinking we can one up the body and there won't be any, uh, you know, like it's a free lunch. I mean, there's definitely going to be a drawback when you start monkeying around with something as exquisitely calibrated as hormones and, you know, neurochemicals. There's also Brie Schaff came on the show a while back. She's an Olympic athlete and uses an extreme low carb ketosis diet to turn off some of the hormonal fluctuations because her performance as an athlete was so varying when she had her cycle. She's like, I can use food to turn off my cycle, then I can kick ass all the time. Right. And so, yeah, so there's a very big swing and guys don't have a swing nearly as, as big like that. Um, right. So in, in your book, you, you make the point that the kind of woman's inherent moodiness, and some of this is just monthly cyclical moodiness, that it's a strength and not a weakness. Right. So what's your perspective on that? Because I think you have a point there. So look, I'm not talking about, you know, mood disorders being a strength. And I'm not talking about, you know, always being in a bad mood as a strength. But the truth is that if a, if a woman is sort of naturally cycling, she's going to go through phases where she is more accommodating and less accommodating, where she is more sensitive and less sensitive. So a few days before your period, PMS, uh, you get more easily annoyed, you're kind of irritable, you may cry more easily, you feel things more deeply, somebody hurts your feelings, you really feel it more. Whereas when you're mid-cycle and ovulating, you're sort of easy, breezy, that's okay, I'll take care of it, don't worry, I got it covered, you're very yeah. accommodating. So um, it's good to have these two poles and, and you know everything in between because um, if you're accommodating all the time, you know, if your estrogen levels are constantly high when you're on the pill or if you're on antidepressants and your serotonin levels are constantly high, it's like, okay, I'll take care of it. Don't worry. I got it covered. That's fine. Nothing bothers me. I'm good. And, you know, at some point there's going to be some resentment or explosion. I mean, you can only accommodate for so long. You can only bend for so long. Eventually you're going to break. But with this natural cycling, if you have episodes, you know, a few days a month, where you're like, wait a minute, that's, you know, that's not okay. I'm not going to do that. Why don't you do it yourself? I've got enough <laughs> on my plate. You know, it's a chance to make some changes in your life and kind of, you know, clean up your, clean up your house. You know, when, when, when the uterus fluffs up and then sloughs off its lining every month, you know, it's kind of like it's nesting. It's making a new nest for a potential egg. And if you, you have the opportunity to clean your house every month where you can make changes and who you're hanging out with or what you're putting up with every month. And those things um, will help you have a clean house. I mean, they'll help you have a better life. But the other issue is just this sensitivity, emotionality, um, being empathic, being connected, being intuitive. I mean, these are some of the greatest assets that women have. And if you're on antidepressants, you're really going to be uh, decreasing your capacity for empathy, how connected you are, how sensitive you are, how emotionally expressive you are. Um, there are some men who really need emotional expression to know how their behavior is affecting you. Um, you know, there was one study that showed that a man is right about 40% of the time in knowing whether his partner is upset or not if she's not crying. Okay. And 40%. That means, so honestly, he'd be better off flipping a coin, right? 40% <laughs> sounds so great. 
So, you know, sometimes you need to cry and express your emotions so the people around you can learn how to be emotionally correct. For instance, um, if your kids hurt your feelings or they scare you with how reckless they are and you're crying, they can see how their behavior affects you. If your husband says something insensitive and, you know, you start to get upset and you start to cry, he can see that he's done something to upset you. That potentially changes other people's behavior. Otherwise, you're really getting into the situation where you're enabling bad behavior. And the example that I give, I wrote a, an op-ed for the New York Times called Medicating Women's Feelings. And I talked about a patient of mine who called me from work and she's crying because her boss was a complete dick to her and like betrayed her and humiliated her in front of her staff. So she's going to her office and she's crying and she's calling her psychiatrist and being like, we have to increase my dose on the antidepressants because <laughs> I can't be seen crying at work. And I was like, I understand that you can't be seen crying at work, but let's talk for a minute about what made you cry. So she tells me this horrible story of this very bad behavior of her boss. And I was like, well, if we just increase your meds so that that behavior doesn't bother you, you are enabling that bad behavior. Yeah. And what we need to do more of, what women need to do more of is feel that something is wrong and say that something is wrong. You know, if you feel something, say something. There's this big campaign in New York City. If you see something, say something. And what I'm saying to women is <laughs> feel your feelings, feel that something is wrong. And then you need to sort of try to calmly communicate to this other person, you know, you did something that upset me or you did something that hurt my feelings. If you're just medicating away all these bad feelings, there's no chance for any corrective behavior to happen. Um, I really feel strongly that the world right now has got an imbalance of yang energy that, you know, there's a sort of yin and yang and it doesn't have to be about men and women. It is a sort of receptive energy versus this penetrative energy and the, you know, I think about yang energy, it's sort of like a cancer of yang on the planet. And you see like war and rape and, you know, drive-by shootings and corporate malfeasance, corporate greed. These to me are the sort of uh, excess of yang energy, penetrative energy. What the world needs more of is, you know, cooperation instead of competition and feeling connected. And like we're on the same team. We're all in this together. We're all on the same planet. Being more receptive, more empathic, more connected, more emotionally expressive not so repressive. You know, for centuries, men have been encouraged to repress their yin energy. And, you know, men are told, little boys are told, you know, uh, you know, man up, Johnny, you know, don't be a pussy, you know, only girls cry and this kind of thing. And boys get messages like this, you know, overt verbal messages and, you know, subliminal messages, subconscious messages, but they are told you need to put away the, this whole emotional thing. It's not going to work. But what's happening now is women are getting those same messages. Women in the workplace, uh, big pharma, you know, there are a lot of people who are telling women, you know, don't be hysterical, don't be emotional, emotions are bad, you know, you want to be hyper-rational. And the antidepressants, and to some degree the oral contraceptives, they create this hyper-rational state, and especially when they work together. You know, estrogen and serotonin are yoked to some degree. So when you're on the pill, your estrogen's higher, therefore your serotonin's going to be higher. When you're on antidepressants, your serotonin is higher. That is, uh, you know, serotonin is all about, like, it's okay, it's fine, don't worry, I got this. And estrogen is totally about accommodating. And, you know, when you're in this PMS state and your estrogen is low, your serotonin is low, you're less accommodating, you feel your feelings more. Um, I think in general, you know, I want to encourage more yin energy to balance out the yang more feminine, emotional, empathic, connected, expressive energy. It's not just about women and men. I mean, everybody has the capacity um, 
to be more emotionally receptive, emotionally expressive, to be more sensitive. It would behoove all of us to sort of engender more yin energy. And I'm really worried that big pharma targets women, makes them feel vulnerable, makes them feel like their emotions are a pathology, you know, that their sadness or their anxiety or their irritability or their fear, that these are things to be medicated away, that they're bad, they're pathological, they leave you vulnerable. Um, and I'm afraid that women are totally buying into this because we are so worried about being hysterical, being labeled hysterical. That, that's a, a really interesting point. One of the things that uh, that I've come across over all this weird biohacking was uh, a, a long time ago, uh, geez, quite a long time ago, I was working uh, with with uh, actually the head of the American Pre and Perinatal Psychology Association, who's the founder of it, and she's like, "Well, you're you're feeling some kind of discomfort. You're feeling something." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm feeling pretty pissed off right now." And she goes, "No, there's something other than anger." I'm like, "No, not really. I'm just pretty right. angry right now," and. Uh, it took like a day at this retreat working with her. And finally she goes, well, okay. Um, is there any other feeling? I'm like, yeah, my stomach feels a little weird. And she goes, oh, that actually has a name. I'm like, really? She goes, yeah, that's called fear. I'm like, really? <laughs> like, and Because you can be so hyper-rational that you just ignore all the emotional inputs. And right. those are like part of your biosensing system that tells you what's going on in the world around you. And right. if you're going to walk into this building and you just feel weird and like your body's telling you don't do that there's probably a reason and it could be that there's terrorists in there and it could be that right. there's toxic mold in there or it could be no rational reason and you just go in but if you ignore the signal then you lose the opportunity to use it right. and like uh i've interviewed mark divine uh navy seal commander and he's like, absolutely, you know, when you, when someone's pointing a gun at you from across the valley, like right. we don't exactly know how, but you just know. And in right. that just knowing is kind of useful as a human being. It's very useful. I mean, we were all bred, you know, to have, um, and you call it a sixth sense or something, but you know, we have more than just our vision and our hearing to keep us safe, but we've been taught, um, especially men, you know, to put that away. Like you don't want to feel fear. You don't want to be sad. I mean, men get a pass on anger. It's kind of interesting you bring up anger because um, a lot of men are comfortable expressing anger. Women do not get a pass on anger. And a lot of women, when they get angry, they will cry. A woman will cry if she's sad about something or if she feels left out or if she sees injustice. Um, but it's also if she sees, you know, the poignancy of humanity or if she sees justice or if she's angry or frustrated. I mean, there's lots of reasons why a woman will cry. We are taught um, to not express anger. And, you know, Freud's whole theory was that depression was like this repressed anger and anger pushed inward. And um, Gabor Mate, who's an amazing, amazing author, um, he writes about it's called When the Body Says No. He writes about women who are so worried about being good girls and not making any waves and not making anybody angry, not being angry themselves, that they get sick, you know, that it's a big stress on the body to not feel your emotions. So um, I understand that some people need antidepressants to function, but the problem now is that more and more women are taking antidepressants because they don't want to feel sad or scared or angry. Um, and it's just, it's not doing anybody any favors to stop feeling these things. They're important signals. You know, it's like I say, don't put the alarm on mute. You know, if you're feeling this, it's for a reason. I mean, the, the one time that I got punched in the face at Bellevue, right before I got punched, I made a joke about it. And I said something like, oh, you know, I've been here eight years. I haven't gotten tagged yet. It's, I'm due. You know, like some, <laughs> ha, ha, 
you know, and then I went out and I got punched in the face. Like there was some part of me that knew I was walking into a situation where I was about to get punched. Um, and when I taught at Bellevue, I would always say to people like, if you are talking to a patient and you're fantasizing about him hitting you or kicking you, like that means something because right now I'm talking to you and you're not thinking that. So, you know, listen to that thought, feel that if, if, you know, the, the hair on the back of your neck is standing up, it's for a reason, you know, we are animals and we are designed to sense danger, but we're so busy kind of pushing that down and trying to not feel it. I, I have found using biofeedback and neurofeedback has made me way more aware that, oh, look, there's a connection between something going on in my body and something that's outside my body. And that there's just huge value in doing that, which is, uh, which has guided me towards a lot of the biohacking things. The whole point of biohacking is you change the environment around you so that you have control of your biology. And you said something at the beginning of the interview that I didn't really point out, but I thought was interesting, is you said that you don't spend so much time talking about childhood trauma and and things like that that can contribute to behaviors. And, and that seems really wise because if you have biology, like neurochemistry that's not working, and you don't have enough energy, you're not going to get much benefit from trying to solve this programming level thing because your hardware is broken. So before you can go in and, and fix a childhood trauma, you should have like functioning hormones and you should have functioning mitochondria and the ability right. to wake up and feel normal in the morning. Right. Because if, if you're not there, what's the point of working on this stuff? Because the work will be very difficult and it probably won't stick. And that was certainly, yeah. that's been my experience as well. Well, a few, a few things about that. I mean, first of all, you know, I don't, it's not like I'm like to my patients, like talk to the hand, you know, I don't care about your trauma. <laughs> I mean, I absolutely explore trauma and it's important to know yeah, that. It but, is. um, and, you know, one of the things that I do in my spare time is I'm the medical monitor for MDMA assisted psychotherapy research um, that treats post-traumatic stress disorder by using MDMA, uh, better known as ecstasy, um, within the context of therapy as a catalyst to make the therapy go deeper and get to sort of the malignant thing that needs to be pulled out and examined. And it is true that there's some people, um, you know, their trauma is really going to drive a lot of their behavior and make things very chaotic. So it does need to be addressed. But more importantly, yes, what you're saying about the hardware and the software, you know, if you upgrade your hardware and then you put all your old software on it, you don't have a new computer, you know? Mm -hmm. So optimally, you do want to upgrade everything. And so one, one of the chapters in Moody Bitches that's very important to me that I had to fight to keep in um, was this chapter on inflammation. And, I, and the, the title of the chapter is Inflammation is the Key to Everything. Because if your brain isn't working, it's true that your mood is going to be lousy no matter what, whether you have a history of trauma or not. Um, so you know, I talk a lot about anti-inflammatory activities, um, which is things like stress reduction or yoga or mindfulness and also adopting an anti-inflammatory diet um, I'm pretty anti-white powders. I really encourage my patients to give up sugar and flour as much as they possibly can. And a lot of them, too, I think dairy is not doing them any favors. For some people, it's definitely pro-inflammatory. So we talk a lot about decreasing inflammation. Um, and exercise decreases inflammation. And, you know, uh, meditation and um, being outside in nature, getting enough sunshine. If you have low vitamin D levels, that's a pro-inflammatory state, right? So you I can't tell you how many patients come to me and they're like, oh, my doctor said I had low vitamin B levels. And I'm like, of course you do. Everyone in America does. You know, you're not alone in this. And so, and I said, 
did your doctor tell you to go outside and be in the sunshine and get some fresh air and exercise? Like, no, the doctor gave me a prescription for vitamin D. It's like so aggravating. <laughs> that, oh, take a pill as opposed to change your behavior. But a couple more things. Uh, one thing I talk about in Moody Bitches quite a bit is cannabis. Um, I edited a book on pot called The Pot Book. Um, and, you know, cannabis is an ancient medicinal herb that has great anti-inflammatory properties. So if you're trying to adopt an anti-inflammatory regimen, there is a place for cannabis in that regimen. And it doesn't have to be that you're getting high every day. It could be that you're juicing the whole plant or you're just taking CBD. I mean, there are ways to take advantage of the cannabis anti-inflammatory properties without necessarily getting altered. Although I will say that for some people, there is a place for being altered and that it can really affect their anxiety level or their depression or it can help them sleep. Um, and I'm also the medical monitor of a, of a study looking to treat post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans with cannabis and different strains of cannabis and wondering if maybe a high CBD strain would be better for treating yeah. the anxiety and insomnia. Different, um, different strains do different things for absolutely. even things like oregano uh, for inflammation, like there's Mediterranean versus Mexican, and they're, they're just right. different compounds. They just kind of are similar. So understanding the nuances in any any kind of food or plant really matters. Right. And, um, you know, things like turmeric or ginger. I mean, we, we make this, uh, it's like a drink that some people call the elixir of life, but it's like a, it's a turmeric, ginger, lemon sort of combination. Um, I've, I've just been doing everything I can to be anti-inflammatory because this is kind of the point I forgot to make. There is a huge body of research now that is linking inflammation with depression, inflammation with anxiety, inflammation with insomnia. So, you know, part of the way of getting the machinery working better and decreasing inflammation um, one of the many results besides, you know, lowering your risk for things like Alzheimer's or cancer or arthritis is that you're going to lower your risk for depression and anxiety as well. So um, when I was writing Moody Bitches, I, I spent about a month per chapter, you know, like in February, I'd be reading about the stuff that I was going to write in March and I'd be writing about stuff that I read about in January. So I tried to do like a chapter a month. But when I got to inflammation, I went down this wormhole for about three months <laughs> yeah. where I was like, God, there's so much information. I started calling all these experts and I feel like I could do a whole book on inflammation. It's really important. And I think one of the reasons why people love paleo diets and why it really helps their mood is that these, the anti-inflammatory properties of the diet um, and the behavior really affect your mood and really improve um, your mood and your anxiety level, and also um, insomnia. I mean, there's definitely a connection between sleep deprivation and inflammation and also obesity. So just getting more sleep is a good anti-inflammatory exercise that also can help you lose weight. I mean, when you're in a pro-inflammatory state, you're not going to lose weight. You're just going to get fatter and fatter. And then the fat ends up being pro-inflammatory. So it really cycles yeah. on itself. So I, I talk I was, about all this stuff in, in Moody Bitches. I was a 300 pounder uh, a really? while back. Oh yeah, and I've I've had a lifetime of, of high inflammation and I, I pretty much the Bulletproof diet, same thing. Like every little thing in there was like, how do you make this less inflammatory or anti-inflammatory? And so there's so many little things you can do with food. And yeah, turmeric and ginger, I use those every day. Yeah. Um, in fact, if you make a tea, you can add the, the brain octane oil stuff I make. It's a C8-MCT, uh, mm -hmm. so a, an extract of a coconut oil that's more rapidly absorbed, but it yeah. drives absorption of herbs. And if you take ginger with that stuff, like you start sweating. 
right. because it brings it in so much more than just a ginger tea. Yeah. And, and so it, the, it's cool. When I have that turmeric ginger drink, I, I go to Bikram yoga sometime. And this one time I drank it and went to Bikram and I like sweat oh. twice as much as I'd ever sweat. I was like, what's going on? I was like, oh, I guess the ginger's thermogenic. Like I didn't even really know. But yes, that'll definitely make you sweat. I'm also pretty big on hemp seed oil. I really love coconut oil. I talk about mm-hmm. coconut oil a lot in Moody Bitches. Um, it's also really a great sexual lubricant. Um, I don't necessarily recommend hemp seed oil for sex. Uh, yeah. But I do, I do recommend taking hemp seed oil internally because I think it's got a really good ratio of omega six to omega three um, fatty worried, acids. You're not worried about excessive omega six or like heat stability and all that. Like I well, was having a hard time finding unoxidized omega sixes, and even then, you don't want too many of them. Right. I mean, my understanding is that the hemp seed oil gives you a better ratio than flaxseed oil does. Oh yeah, that's true. But I guess I, I just flat out don't recommend flaxseed oil for most people right. because it's so oxidized. But okay, I I get it. Yeah, yeah, I would say hemp is way superior to flax. Right, and okay. it may be that coconut oil and your particular brand of coconut oil are even better. Oh, I don't even sell plain coconut oil. Like I I tell people, coconut oil is very affordable. You can get lauric acid because it's fifty percent of coconut. Oil. So just go out there and right. buy some coconut oil. But what I use is, uh, is about 6% of coconut oil, which raises your ketones and causes like stable energy in the brain. Like it's a, it's right. a not really coconut oil. It, it's, well, you'll have to send me a sample. Oh, I will I'll absolutely send you some. It, it <laughs> makes a, it makes a difference. And that's one of the ingredients in Bulletproof Coffee. And yeah. one of the things that's interesting is that one of the many contributors to adrenal stress and moods is just brain energy, right? So if you have a, a little bit of hypoglycemia, you have not enough energy to fuel your prefrontal cortex, well, of course, right. you're going to have more problems just adjusting and Regulating managing your, moods. your mood. Right, yeah. yeah. I definitely talk about the, you know, the sort of frontal inhibition, you know, mm-hmm. that there are these higher cortical centers that dampen down the emotional centers and how important it is to keep those online. You know, the other thing I remember I want to talk to you about with this uh, digging up trauma um, is this idea of neuroplasticity. Yeah. Um, and that it's true that the antidepressants do increase neuroplasticity, but so does exercise. Yeah, or blueberries. Um, <laughs> right. So there's other ways to do it. But this idea that like, if you're going to keep going back to where you got hurt, you know, okay, I understand you had a terrible traumatic childhood, but if we're going to spend hour after hour, week after week, talking about how terrible your childhood was over and over, you're going to lay down pretty you know, deep yeah. grooves in your neuroanatomy where it's going to be easier to feel crappy over and over. What you really want to do is, is practice spending time feeling good, focus on feeling good, um, take, you know, whenever you do feel good, you need to take extra time to fully feel that and pay attention to it. You know, we pay attention to feeling bad and that stuff sticks. So, you know, there is this whole kind of power of positive thinking that has to do with neuroplasticity where you're really better off learning to be happy, practicing being happy, focusing on gratitude and things like that. Instead of you know, making these deeper ruts by talking about where you got hurt over and over again. Have you experimented with or do you recommend the EMDR, the eye movement dissociative reflex kind of therapy? I definitely do recommend eye movement um, therapy to people. I have somebody that I work with and I send people to. Um, Yeah, I totally buy into that. And I, um, I I have, I work with a lot of different therapists and I have a couple who are particularly gifted um, at working with PTSD and some use the EMDR and some use some other, um, you know, sort of whole brain, uh, what's the word where you're <laughs> wanting to get your whole brain working like left and right synchronizing. Uh, hem- yeah. Hemicoherence or yeah, 
yeah. can be coherent. It's definitely, you know, I have, I have some people, you know, I'm, I'm in Manhattan, so I've got lots There's of, everything there. <laughs> lots of options for different uh, referrals and therapy. And what I wish I could do, what people ask me all the time, um, I get emails, I get voicemails a lot. People wanting to know where they can do MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Yeah. You know, they, there's a lot of people out there who have post-traumatic stress disorder who would potentially benefit from MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and there isn't, there are no venues right now for that. And I know that there are some underground therapists out there. Um, I'm not, I don't know who they are, and I'm not comfortable referring to them. And that's, you know, it's not really what's yeah, it puts your license at risk. My so line of work. Yeah, I do want to keep. That. I do want to keep my license. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's just a few studies going on in America and there's, you know, there's like one in Canada that's gearing up and there's one in Spain that got shut down that may be starting again. But, you know, there's little pockets of research going on. But um, it would be nice if eventually, you know, more people who wanted had access to things like MDMA assisted psychotherapy. I know a lot of people are interested in ayahuasca um, yep. and they, they find ayahuasca rituals helpful. Um, in I, I did. Yeah. Cleansing. You did. Oh. Uh-huh. Um, we also had uh, Rick uh, Rick, Doblin Rick Doblin from Maps on the yeah. show. Actually, he was a double header talking about some of the stuff. And the bottom line is that if you're using the stuff in a healing therapeutic setting for almost any of the hallucinogens, right. um, there's a case to be made, a very strong one, that it ought to be legal uh, with a, a licensed uh, professional helping you out. But just banning them reflexively is, it just doesn't make any sense at this point. Right. Well, look, our, you know, I think we can agree pretty easily that our nation's drug laws don't make sense. They're not about sense. I mean, <laughs> you know, if you, if you have things like cigarettes and alcohol that kill half a million people a year and they're totally legal and unscheduled, and then you have something like cannabis, which kills no one that's in schedule one, clearly um, the, our scheduling is not based on science. It's not based on logic. It's based on fear and politics. Yeah. And also it's really, it was based on xenophobia. I mean, a lot of the drug scheduling was this idea that you know uh, the you know the Mexican migrant workers are going to rape your white women and things like that? So I'm mean, one of the reasons why I call pot cannabis and not marijuana is that you know marijuana was this racist slur that was created as part of the campaign to take cannabis away from the doctors um, and make it illegal. And the doctors didn't want this, and it took them a while to realize that marijuana and cannabis were the same thing because the doctors were recommending cannabis to their patients. Um, <laughs> and the doctors were actually misrepresented on the floor of Congress, where somebody wow. said, "Oh yeah, we talked to the AMA and they're for this," which was a lie. A guy named Woodward, I think, or Woodard. Um, so there's, you know, there's uh, there's terrible history. You know, cannabis is an ancient medicinal plant; it's been around for thousands of years. It's only been illegal since like the late. 30s, early 40s. Um, but just because you make something illegal doesn't mean that you take away all its therapeutic effects, you know? And certainly when it comes to certain hallucinogens, I mean, there's really interesting research going on now with psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And with and with ayahuasca or with LSD, I mean, there are plenty of hallucinogens that can help people sort of tap into the areas they need to go and explore in order to heal. Um, and they're not legal. It's very hard to do research on them. It's impossible to prescribe them or to work with them. And I really appreciate the work that Rick Doblin is doing because it's, yeah. uh, it's hard work. It's been, you know, I've known Rick since 1985, so it's 30 wow. years now. And the thing I've said to him from the very beginning is like, you know, you and I need to kind of watch our cholesterol and our blood pressure because we want to be around, you know, to see the fruits of our labors. But this is going to be a long haul. This is definitely a long game. Um, and he's making tremendous strides and headway. You know, I, I always picture him as like this, 
this guy with a motorcycle helmet on smashing his head into a brick wall over and over and over and like, it's cracking, it's chipping, you're doing it, keep doing it. So, so far his head seems okay. It's, you know, it's, it's been long kind of grueling work and he, it's literally his life's work that he wants to see these medicines be available to people. You know, I edited two books, one on ecstasy and, and one on cannabis, one on MDMA um, called the uh, ecstasy, the complete guide and one on cannabis called the pop book. And these two books are both nonprofit books where all the proceeds fund clinical research and the, the people who are sort of directing the monies. I mean, the, the checks are made out to maps. They're made out to Rick. So, um, you know, his work is really important. The research, the MDMA psychotherapy studies that he is helping to enable are really well-designed, safe studies that are having really impressive uh, results. And the same with the, with the psilocybin studies that Hefter is funding. I mean, they're getting really impressive results. These are power tools that are dangerous potentially in, you know, incapable hands. But in people who are trained to work with them, they are great catalysts. That can make psychotherapy go faster, go deeper, and be much more efficient. You know, good psychotherapy takes years, and it's there's fits and starts, and you get to plateaus, and then you quit, and then you come back, and you get to these areas where you keep not wanting to go to. But if you if you have these Schedule One drugs as catalysts, um, it's sort of like anesthesia with a patient, where you can really get to the malignant thing, and you can go where you need to go, and examine that malignant thing, and remove it, and. Uh, you know, sort of reassemble somebody without that malignant thing. I mean, you know, it is sort of like psychosurgery. It's much faster and much more efficient. So I'm really interested um, in these Schedule One medicines. There's also Stan Groff who used LSD on 10,000 patients. And I, I've yeah. done work with him twice, not with LSD because he's the not legal. Yeah. And, yeah. But it's amazing. The guy's in his, his mid to late 80s right. and still going strong. Right. But still it's helped. Still around the world. Yeah. And he's helped so many people. And people, what LSD? That stuff makes you crazy. Well, he was using it to make people uncrazy right. in therapeutic doses in a therapeutic setting. So right. taking it going to, to Disneyland is a really, really bad idea on so many different levels uh, right. but i i am offended that any agency says that that the people i work with to manage my biology are not allowed to use certain tools because they don't like them like it's just petty and mean right <laughs> i mean you know for these are non-toxic you know when you're talking about lsd psilocybin i mean i'll set aside mdma because there are toxicity issues at higher right. doses but even with mdma um, FDA has sanctioned studies because they know that a single oral dose of pure MDMA given once or twice or maybe three times in the lifetime of a patient um, does not carry more risk than the potential benefits of doing the therapy. And certainly the psilocybin studies or LSD, I mean, these are not toxic molecules. There may be behavioral toxicity. If you think the traffic lights are so pretty, you don't realize the red light means you shouldn't cross the street, but they're not toxic to the brain and, and body. I mean, take, you know, alcohol, which is completely neurotoxic and toxic to the liver. And if you're a heavy drinker for years, you will get dementia. You know, your brain does not look good. You will not, you will lose your balance. You will lose your memory. You don't see that, um, with these other medicines. So now MDMA is sort of a, a different issue because I mean, first of all, if you're buying ecstasy or Molly, which I hate that name and we can get into why, <laughs> um, at a club, you know, you have no idea whether it's MDMA and if you're overheating or if you're overhydrating, which is a real problem with MDMA, a lot of the, um, the high profile deaths with ecstasy involve just one hit or a tablet and a half or something, but the person drank a gallon of water. Um, MDMA causes without salt, <laughs> right? MDMA causes you to retain water. And if you're a 
premenopausal woman, you're already retaining water. So women are more susceptible to overhydration and the risks of overhydration with ecstasy than men are. Um, and everyone is sort of equally susceptible to this overheating heat stroke thing that can happen. But, you know, in, in the therapeutic setting where you know it's MDMA, you're not overhydrating, you're not overheating. The risks are much more manageable, and especially if you're not taking ultra high doses weekend after weekend, which unfortunately that's what some people are doing. Um, this issue with Molly and the mythology around Molly is very frustrating for me. I mean, I was just talking to somebody the other day, these kids, and they're like, oh, Molly isn't ecstasy. Molly's pure. And it's like, you know, that's what they want you to think. I mean, uh-huh. it was really a rebranding, you know, where people were having uh, tablets or powder, which was adulterated, and people weren't having good MDMA experiences. So they decided if they call it Molly, which is like this this sweet girl with freckles and braids, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's a name that ev- evokes something pure and innocent. Um, it's still ecstasy. It still may or may not be MDMA. And if you think a white powder is more pure than a pressed tablet, you're an idiot. Um, it's more easy to adulterate a white powder, at least with a tablet. Once it's a tablet, you're done adulterating it. With a white powder, anybody and any, you know, can step on it any step of the line, you know, from the dealer to the middleman to whoever's selling it next yeah. can add things to increase how much money they make selling it. So a white powder is not more pure. Calling it Molly doesn't make it any better than calling it MDMA or ecstasy. Um, but in the therapeutic setting, this is a non-issue. The drug substitution, which is one of the biggest risks, is completely a non-issue. So I'm a, I, this is such a fascinating conversation. I, I, I want to... I want to go further on the the pharmaceutical side, but there's one other mood stabilizing or unstabilizing thing I wanted to ask you if you had experience with. Uh, when I was filming Moldy, uh, the documentary that we released this week uh, about toxic mold in the environment, yeah. one one of the things that that came up was uh, the concept of mold rage. Like someone goes into an environment where there's a water damaged building, they breathe the stuff, and suddenly their ability to regulate their emotions goes kind of out the window, and they're they're just angry or pissed off. And one of the things that happened was my uh, my producer was sensitive to mold, and she went into a really moldy basement after uh, Hurricane Sandy. Um, she went in like during filming, so this place still had toxic mold, and she came out and had a full blown PTSD attack. As in, like, like literally shaking, crying, unable to to function. Yeah. Uh, have you, Did you seen? Film it? Did you film uh, it? You know, she, she was so tweaked. We kept interviewing the guy we were interviewing, who's a, a right. chiropractor who lived in that house. Poor guy. To, like turn the camera around. I, I regret that we didn't, but literally, I had to like just like put my arm around her and just like like hold her for like a half hour until she could yeah. stop shaking. And that was massive PTSD that was induced by an environmental chemical. Right. How much of that is going on with, with mood instability and things like well, that? Well, you know, who knows? And uh, there's a few reasons why we don't know. I mean, the first thing to keep in mind is almost all psychiatric research is funded by drug companies. Okay. So, if, you know, if there's not a daily dose, there's not going to be any research behind mm-hmm. it. Who's going to fund these studies? I mean, you know, the government would have to be pressured considerably to fund these studies. So the truth is that we don't know what's going on with mold or with a lot of other environmental toxins. I mean, I've definitely had patients been exposed. I just had one a few weeks ago who's they, they're, they live by this lab and the lab was having a fire. And he's like, what is a lab burning? You know, it was this horrible smell. It got into his apartment, this like toxic fumes and toxic gas. And he's had neurological symptoms ever since. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there is, I know Mount Sinai had like this environmental studies 
department for a while, and then I heard that maybe they closed it. I mean, we need more environmental studies. There's no question that that things like mold are an issue. And, and you know, the question about whether EMFs uh, have, have any effect on behavior, I think, uh, you know, there were things that got cut out of Moody Bitches, I have to say. Um, I looked at, you know, electromagnetic frequencies a lot and just the whole issue of, you know, Wi-Fi and, and the wireless yeah. generation that we're in and whether that has any effect on the brain. And, um, you know, some of that stuff was just felt to be too wonky and was cut out. So it drives, it drives me nuts. Like I have EMF devices embedded in the chairs in the Bulletproof coffee shop in Santa Monica that right. change. They're, they're totally unregulated and they're legal, but they change health for the better. Like they increase stem cell proliferation and things right. like that. They increase nitric oxide synthesis. If you have more nitric oxide, it changes your brain because you get more blood in your brain. Right. So right. to argue that, that they don't have an effect biologically when there are companies manufacturing EMF devices, right. I have six of them in my human hacking facility that change and you can feel right. what they do to your body. And then people have the audacity to say there's no effect because they don't heat your tissues. Like, what planet are they on? Like, you, I could stick <laughs> right. it to their head and they'll feel it. <laughs> but, right. Well, I mean, that's actually one of the really interesting, cool things going on now is people doing these like stims with yeah. either putting it on their earlobes or it's like yeah, a I, I do all that. DIY, you know, electroconvulsive therapy to a small degree. Um, yeah. It seems to really work. And, you know, I wonder if big pharma is worried about this. And the other issue that I talk about a little bit in Moody Bitches, but not as much as I wanted to, was plastics and how mm -hmm. the, you know, endocrine disrupting qualities of a lot of the things that we use every day and totally take for granted. So, you know, when I was researching Moody Bitches, first we went through this phase where we were like, forget the wireless phones. We want the old corded phones and, and like, forget the electric blankets. You know, we're getting rid of everything EMF in the house. And then I was going through this phase where we're like getting rid of everything plastic in the house. Um, it's a little crazy making to try to make your environment as safe as it can be. And, you know, I get that people get a little nutty. The other thing people get nutty about is food. I mean, there's actually a diagnosis now called orthorexia, right. which is this idea that you're so worried about what you take in that you're getting neurotic and nutty about it. But, um, I imagine, you know, the book, the 24 hour body, it's Timothy Ferris book. Oh, the, the four hour body. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it turns sorry, around the show the a couple of times. Yeah. Excuse me. That book really um, w was one of my earliest references for the, f the food part and the food chapter of Moody Bitchism and looking at the paleo diet. And, um, you know, I found it very helpful personally. And I really recommended, you know, that slow carb diet to people just as a place to start. Um, I haven't gone totally nutty with all the biohacking. I have to admit that women really come to my office and they want the meds. They, you know, they come to me and they know what they want. And they're, they're so bombarded by advertising. You know, the thing that I, I sort of compare it to is, I don't know if you saw the, the ad for the Apple Watch. Yeah. But they, they did something, it was kind of evil genius, right in the beginning of the ad where they start showing you 8, 12 different versions of the watch. So right off the bat, you're not thinking like, I wonder if I should get this watch or not. You're like, oh, should I get the silver one? Or, oh, there's a diamond one. That looks nice. Oh, maybe this leather one. You're not thinking... Do I need this? Do I want this? You're thinking, which one should I get? And what's right. happening now is that women are getting so bombarded with drug advertising in, in women's magazines, on daytime talk shows, um, and the doctors too. I mean, when I read a, a medical journal, there's only one kind of advertising in that journal. It's drug ads. They're, you know, they're full-page ads. They're multi-page ads. And when I read the articles, they're paid for by the drug companies. And it's really important that people start to understand um, we can't trust medical journals anymore. And that is the, really the sad truth. Um, 
there's tremendous bias in how the studies are conducted, how the studies are reported, and they are almost all funded by big pharma. And big pharma is not only, you know, laughing all the way to the bank and selling a lot of meds, but they're creating new diagnoses because they have new meds that they want to sell. I mean, the, the most horrific example that's driving me crazy right now is this diagnosis called binge eating disorder, which um, there are full page ads for doctors everywhere saying, you know, your patients may have binge eating disorder, but they may be ashamed to tell you. So you have to specifically ask them about it. And then they're advertising to women saying, if you sometimes eat more than you want to, and then you feel bad about it afterwards, you may have binge eating disorder, which is kind of like saying, if you're a woman in America, you may have binge eating disorder. I have I mean, a treatment for that. Us, how many a- of us, at least, you know, especially around PMS, where you're going to eat more than you want to and feel terrible about it afterwards? I mean, that's a pretty common diagnosis. But, oh. but the makers of Vyvanse, Shire, who makes Adderall, you know, Adderall's generic now, so you mm-hmm. can't. You know, they're not going to make much money off the generic Adderall. So they still have a brand called Vyvanse. And they're creating another brand of amphetamine that lasts about 16 hours. You know, Adderall tablets last maybe three or four hours. Capsules last six or eight hours. Those are generic. Vyvanse lasts maybe 10, 12 hours. And they're creating a new amphetamine that lasts 16 hours. They are marketing almost exclusively to women. They've already got the little boys hooked on on their study pills. So now they're going after, you know, half of the world population, which is women. Um, all their ads recently now are, are showing either women with ADHD or women with binge eating disorder. Um, and they're going to make millions and maybe billions of dollars on speed on selling speed. And, you know, big pharma right now is, is pretty much all about smack and speed, right? I mean, pain meds, you know, we're 5% of the world population in America, but we take half of its pills and 80% of its pain meds. So we are a nation that is taking a lot of opiates and we're taking stimulants, taking a lot of amphetamines. So, you know, with smack and speed, I mean, big pharma's in good shape. They're going to make lots of money, lots of people taking their daily doses. And the other thing nobody wants to talk about is that antidepressants are hard to quit. I'm not going to say addictive, but I'm going to say that when you take antidepressants chronically, your brain makes a lot of changes to accommodate that. And if you try to get off your antidepressants, you are not going to like the way you feel. And you're going to think, oh, I guess that means I really am depressed. I should stay on my meds. Instead of thinking, wow, I've got a withdrawal syndrome from trying to stop this medicine that I've become completely tolerant to. So um, I'm spending more time now trying to get people off their antidepressants, off their anti-anxiety meds, off their sleeping pills. And it's hard work. Everybody feels lousy. Um, and I have tons of patients who stay on their meds only because it's hard to get off them. So, you know, the, the daily dose, it's so accepted now that people take a daily dose. Um, but not by me. I really think that there's a problem with this. And, you know, my, my goal, my joke is, you know, that, that moody bitch just puts me out of business. Um, well, that's, uh, that's a, a great goal. And uh, I, I, there's so, so much you, you can say about when professionals do their jobs right, uh, they do reduce demand. Uh, I'm, I have this crazy thing yeah. at the Bulletproof Coffee Shop. I'm going to sell food that makes you not want to eat more. Good. <laughs> but that That's means I'll sell good. less food, like just by because it's designed right. to make you satisfied in stable energy, right? It, it's the same general idea. Like it really will affect the amount of snacks that people buy, but I don't care because that's what it's supposed to do. Right. And, you don't care because yeah. you're doing you're doing good, and sometimes right. doing good is more important than making money. And obviously, that's not necessarily a message that people at Shire or Lilly or any of the number of other companies have gotten. 
Um, well, you, can, you can make money by doing good. It's the only way you should be making money because otherwise it just comes at too high of a cost. You're well, going to hell. You're just going straight to hell. That's all there is to it. There is such a thing as karma, right? I, I, I believe so. And, and Julie, that's probably a, a great note. I wonder if you'll mention it because there's a, a question I've asked every guest on the show at the, at the end of the show. And, and it's given everything you know, not just your professionally, but your whole life's journey, what are your top three recommendations for someone who comes to you and says, look, I just want to, I want to do better at everything I do. I want to perform better, whether it's being a parent, being right. a Broadway actor, whatever the heck it is. Uh, what are the three most important th- pieces of advice or things that you would recommend? Well, you know, one thing I say is that the further away you get from nature and from what's natural for you as a social primate, the sicker you're going to be, the sicker biologically and the sicker psychiatrically. So anything that you can do that's in line with nature and with your nature is going to make you feel better. Um, I think for women, I think, and men too, I think it's just, you know, getting in your body, be in your body and feel your body and feel your feelings. I think that we're getting very disconnected. We've got a, a, a big disconnect where we're in our heads. Uh, you know, we're on our computers, we're on our smartphones, we're, we're totally separated from our bodies and, and enjoying being in our bodies. This is definitely true for sex, but also just, you know, for movement and for mood. So it's um, be in your body, feel your feelings, and just be as natural as you can be, because I think you cannot go wrong with nature and you're not going to do any better than nature. Um, very, very well said. I love it. That was one, right? That's three. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I got nothing up. Okay. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, Moody Bitches is your latest book. They can find that obviously on Amazon or at Barnes and Noble. Uh, yeah. But what, where um, else can they find you? It's funny. If I meet somebody at a party, I will say, just Google Julie Ecstasy and you'll see lots of stuff. <laughs> but um, you can also Google Julie Bitch. Um, not nice. You're winning the SEO wars. So, right. <laughs> So, um, you know, moodybitches.com, thepotbook.com, weekendsatbellevue.com. They're all these separate websites because I'm not organized enough just to have one. Um, okay. But I'm, I'm very easy to find and track down, and there's, there's lots of stuff up there. Out there. I'm, uh, you know, I've got things on YouTube, and I'm, I'm not shy. We will uh, include links to all of that in the show notes so people great. can come on over to the transcript of this and all on the Bulletproof website. And then we'll just put links to the various properties that we know about for you. All right, then. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on Bulletproof Radio. It was great fun to interview you and have an awesome afternoon. It was definitely my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dave. If you enjoyed today's show, you know what to do. Go out and buy Moody Bitches and check it out because it's a book that's worth reading. And while you're at it, you could click like on iTunes or you could head on over to Bulletproof and get a new bag of Bulletproof coffee beans or try some unfair advantage and support this kind of work because there's more than 200 of these shows out there full of people like Julie. Have an awesome day. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products.
Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.